Well, good morning. Good morning. Great to see all of you. My name is Joe, and I'm the associate pastor uh, here at Grace. Uh, for those of you, um, for, for all of us, if you could turn our Bibles to Psalm uh, chapter 91. If you don't have a Bible with you, and if you'd like to look along, uh, you'll notice there's a blue uh, pew Bible that's in front of you. Um, and if you don't have a physical Bible at home, and if you'd like to, uh, please take one home with you. It is our hope and our prayer and our desire that in the reading of God's Word that He would reveal Himself uh, to you in wonderful and wonderful ways. And if you're to look into, uh, if you're looking in the Blue Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 497. 497. Now, uh, uh, let me, as, as we are turning uh, to Psalm 91, let me start, off, start us off this way. One of the things that I've noticed in our uh, culture today is that vulnerability is really kind of upheld as a virtue uh, that uh, everybody should have. So, uh, for those of you as, as individuals, right, you're encouraged to be vulnerable with yourself, to be authentic uh, to yourself, both in your strengths and your weaknesses. In our communities, you know that in the best community that you were in, regardless of what setting it might have been, uh, it was one of vulnerability, where you could just be yourself, right? Bring all of yourself uh, to that community and be accepted. And what I'm finding that's really interesting is that even in kind of like corporate cultures, what I'm seeing is that uh, corporate leaders are encouraged uh, to be vulnerable uh, with the people uh, that they manage for varying uh, reasons. And as I look at this development, I, I find that it's a good thing for the most part, right? It's good to be honest about, you know, your human condition and all of your flaws, right? It doesn't go away just because you bury your head in the sand and as, act as if it doesn't exist. So there's, uh, a, it's a good thing to be honest with yourself. And even on a corporate level, what I'm reading is that it's good for a leader to be vulnerable, because perhaps more so than ever in today's day and age, we're fa faced with a complexity of problems uh, that you can really, uh, it's really hard to account for, uh, hard to predict. And once it comes, right, what we are finding is that people don't want leaders who pretend like they have it all figured out just to see that they don't have it figured out. They'd rather have a leader that's going to be honest about their vulnerabilities and work within a team context to problem solve and that kind of a thing, right? So vulnerability is upheld as a virtue, but here's the problem with that. The problem is that it's scary to be vulnerable, to bring your weaknesses, to bring kind of the lack of your expertise into something, and to be honest about it. Never mind with others, but even uh, yourself as well. Here's what um, Brené Brown said about vulnerability, and she puts it so well. She says, the difficult thing is that vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you, and the last thing I'm willing to show you. Why? Because in you, vulnerability in you, it's courage and daring, but in me, it's weakness Right? When the world looks at vulnerability, it can't help but see vulnerability as weakness. And once it sees vulnerability as weakness, we find that automatically what comes is danger. Right? When you're weak, how are you going to face up to the challenges of the world? And herein lies the assumption of every single human heart. 
that has a hard time being vulnerable before ourselves and others. The assumption is that the world is a hostile place. And if we don't protect ourselves, we're going to get hurt, we're going to get exploited, we're going to be ignored, and we're going to be cast aside. So herein lies the problem. If we can agree that vulnerability, to a large degree, leads to wholeness, because in fact it is being honest about who we already are, then how are we going to cultivate it, right? That's the challenge that is uh, before us. And here's, what, uh, here's what's interesting about Christianity's take on vulnerability. Uh, when the world sees vulnerability as a weakness, Christianity flips that reality on its head and says vulnerability is actually a strength. We get this example from the Apostle Paul, right? There, you guys may know this famous passage in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that was seemingly put there by God. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, says. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And here's what he has to say. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying is, in my vulnerability, I am comfortable with my vulnerabilities because in my vulnerability, I have confidence enough to know that I am strong. And he's able to say that because he himself experienced the reality that is set before us in Psalm 91, and that is the protection of the God of the universe. And so that's the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you follow along with me, let me read uh, for you, I'm going to read from the entire, uh, read the entire psalm for us, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Now here's the picture that we get from Psalm 91. In the midst of all of these troubles, and we're going to get into that in a moment, The psalmist is able to look at all of that and say, I am utterly vulnerable right now, but I have a supreme source of confidence in knowing that God protects me. 
And so what we'll say today, if you want the point up front, it is God's protection that allows you to be confident in your vulnerabilities. And that kind of vulnerability would allow you to be whole, not just within yourself, but contribute to a community that will be whole. Because in fact, the most life-giving community that we can be a part of is one in which we can be vulnerable with one another. And so here's what we're going to do today. We'll look at, take a look at the topic of God's protection and look at it un, under uh, three headings. First, we'll take a look at the protection that we create. And secondly, we'll look at the protection that we get. And lastly, we'll take a look at how we experience that protection. The protection that we create, the protection that we get, and how we can experience it. So first, let's take a look at the protection that we tend to create for ourselves. Now, think about the way we instinctively respond to sources of fear and uncertainty, right? This is almost like baked in to the human DNA, right? What do we do in response to fear? We fight or we flight. And so here's how this plays out in our lives, right? It doesn't need to be that like you're in mortal danger and that's your response. Any source of insecurity, any source of uncertainty, any source of anxiety or fear, right? How do we respond? We do this. We either draw up a plan, we brainstorm, we get a whiteboard and think about an action plan of how we are going to address that problem. We fight the, 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 the sources of fear head on. Or, if it becomes too much for us, what we decide to do is we go away on a nice vacation. Right? We didn't get to go on a vacation this summer yet. Right? So I imagine like a white sandy beach, you're lounging in your beach chair, maybe have a little margarita. Right? That's what we tend to think, fight or flight. But as we get to the heart of this passage, what this passage is telling us is that this psalmist has learned to respond to fear neither by fighting nor by flighting, but by him taking shelter in God, in the midst of his suffering. Here's what's interesting in the way the psalmist responds, and the way he sees God as a shelter, is that this shelter exists not as an escape from, nor an elimination of his troubles, but this shelter exists in the midst of, of his troubles. Right, look at the psalm with me. And if you have your Bibles open, you might as well keep it open because we're going to go back to this text time and time again. Right, verse 3. <clears throat> right, the psalmist kind of depicts God's protection of him. Right, he sees himself as a helpless bird that is already caught in a snare. Right, verse 5, he sees himself as a soldier in the heat of battle, and he sees arrows whizzing by. Right, he's in the thick of this battle. Right, verses 6 to 7, right, he pictures himself as a helpless person right, with an epidemic, with a pandemic raging all around him. And finally, if you look down to verses 11 to 12, right, he sees himself as this kind of weary traveler. Right, that is on a journey, and he's walking along the unpaved rocky roads. And wherever he turns, right, he's in danger of striking his foot against a stone. And so here's, when he thinks of God as his protection, when he thinks of God as a shelter, right, what he is thinking of is a far cry from a sandy beach. He's thinking of troubles, he's thinking of suffering, and yet this is what God's protection looks like to the psalmist. And we're going to get to why this is important in a moment. 
But here's where it's important for us to be real about the way we are. Even though that this is the way God's protection is depicted to us in Scripture, what we would long for, we would much prefer the former approach to our fear than the latter. Because we are so uncomfortable with suffering and hardship in our life. And we see this out in the culture. And so let me bring it out into the culture and let me bring it into our, our, our context here in the church as well. So uh, some time ago, I read this article um, that came out in New York Magazine. And it was profiling this meditation app. Um, I don't want to say the name of the app because it's not that great. I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing it. But there's this, like, there was an article on this meditation app. And the article was actually highlighting the hypocrisy of the app because it was pointing out the discrepancy between what the apps were designed for, right, what the apps were designed to do, right, so the ideals behind the app versus how it's actually marketed and how it's sold. And so here's what's interesting. If you were to talk to the people who designed the app, right, they have all of these, this idealism behind the product that they created, you know, matter, uh, after all, they want to you know, feel like they're making a difference in the world in some good way. But once it gets to the marketing department, some of you may know, it's a different story. You want to appeal to the felt needs of the people that are going to actually spend the money to buy the app. And so the article was uh, uh, talking about this where they were talking to the CEO of this, this app company. And it's this meditation app. And he, he talks about this app creating compassion and empathy in people. And he talks about this app being designed, right, to create peace, right, in the midst of our troubles. And then, and then the article goes, wait, but look at the way it's marketed. And it looks at some of its marketing slogans, and they all say something like this, I meditate to crush it. Right, it's a picture of this guy, Serene, has it all together. He says, I meditate to get ahead. And one of them even said, I, I have no idea what this means, so... You know, one of you can figure it out. It says, I meditate to go full salsa. I have no idea what that means. And the article says, isn't it interesting how we as Americans uh, uh, turned a, a Buddhist practice, right, that was meant to be about letting go, and how in our, um, uh, in our disposition, we've instinctively turned it into a self-improvement project. And so the whole idea is this, if you, are you faced with fears, are you faced with anxiety, here's what you do. Uh, you take these steps to address those problems, whether it be meditation, whether it be planning out your life, whether it be taking the, the, a better vacation than the one that you took last year. If you were to take these steps, you will reach this level, next level of existence, and then what you're going to take back is a sense of control over your life. So that you no longer have to worry about these things that are causing you anxiety and fear. Away from all of the mess that we see in the world. Now why am I spending so much time talking about this? Because while this may be true of the world, that tries to fight or flight its way away from our troubles, we as Christians are no different. Why? Because Christianity was designed, right, conceived in the mind of God in, in, in which it's a, it exists as a system in which we turn to God as our protection and our shelter, just as a psalm illustrates for us. 
And it's in the midst of suffering and hardship. Because after all, Christianity calls us, even as we experience God's protection, to enter into the suffering of the world. To be with those who are suffering. So Christianity is conceived in the mind of God as a world in which we exist in suffering. We endure hardship. But the confidence that we are supposed to find, the protection that we are supposed to experience is in the midst of suffering and hardship. But how do you and I think about Christianity more often than not? How do we practice Christianity? We try and take control. Right? Whenever we perceive a threat, the goal for us is their elimination an escape. And not existing in the midst of it. Now, with that being said, there's nothing inherently wrong about seeking stability and security. Right? There's nothing wrong about wanting to protect yourself and others. But here's the reality that we find ourselves in. If you're constantly looking to take control over your life in the way the world does, if you're constantly looking to bubble wrap your life as much as you can to protect yourself and your loved ones from as much hardship as possible, you know that leads to exhaustion. You're constantly working, right? Because if we take the idea of sin seriously, <laughs> that everything is fallen and broken and everything is not the way it should be, there's only so far you can remove yourself from suffering and hardship before it catches up with you. One of the things that I'm finding, especially as I myself have moved out of the city into a suburb, and when I talk to people that are um, going through kind of similar phases of life, here's what I find, is that they have kind of removed their life away from the messiness of life in the city, and yet they come to the suburbs and they're faced with a whole new lot of problems. Why did, why, I mean, for people like myself, why have you moved out to the suburbs? Because we wanted to get away from the messiness of life in the city. And yet here we come, we're faced with a whole new set of problems. There's only so far that you can bubble wrap yourself for you to experience the kind of protection that comes from within you. And yet what this psalm tells us is that what we really need is for us not to be whisked away from our threats, to be whisked away from the sources of our fear and anxiety, but that what we really need is protection in the midst of it. So that in the midst of this protection, we are enabled and strengthened right, to endure so that we get through them with our heads high, undefeated, and having gone through the fire, so to speak, we come out stronger than we were before. And so even on a practical level, what we find is that the protection that we create simply does not work. And so here's the second point that I want to look to, is take a look at the protection that we get. What kind of protection does God provide us? Now, <clears throat> I want to try to move through this quickly. Uh, but in the passage, we get four characteristics of God's protection and care that we're going to examine together. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to list them for us from the outset, and we'll think through them briefly as we go through it together. And here's, here are the four things. We find that God's protection and care are four things. It's versatile, 
is comprehensive, personal, and empowering. God's protection over us is versatile, comprehensive, personal, and empowering. So let's take a look at four of those uh, quickly. First, we find that God's protection and care over us is versatile. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you look at verse 2, he says, God is my refuge and my fortress. And again, if you look down at verse 4, he says, uh, uh, his faithfulness over me is a shield and a buckler, right? And here's how the psalmist is portraying God's protection over him. It's in militaristic words and undertones. It's talking about God's unyielding strength that has the, the ability to withstand the artillery of the enemy, right? He is like a soldier, that surrounds you with his strengths, right? Here we get a picture of a God who protects and cares in a way that, you know, traditional cultures would have associated with fathers. To protect you through his strength. But if you were to look again at verse 4, the first part there, what does he say? He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. For those of you that don't know, pinion is like the tip of a bird's uh, wings, Right, so we get this picture of a God who is uh, gentle. Right, we're getting a picture of a God who, who is like a mother bird, right, shielding her young from the scorching sun, right, absorbing its heat so that her young can stay protected from the elements. Right, that's a, a little bit of a different picture than the one we got before. Here we get a picture of a God who's traditionally associated with characters that would be more motherly. It's a tender care that the psalmist receives from God. Here's, here's what we're talking about here. If you put those two together, we get a God who is both uh, traditionally fatherly in his protection over his children, but also motherly, gentle and tender in his care for his children as well. Here's the point that we uh, get from this depiction of God, that depending on what it is that you're going through, you know that you need to be cared for in different ways. Sometimes, right, if you're being an idiot like I am most of the time, you need somebody to come in with a hammer and, say, and speak truth into you and say, Joe, you are being uh, so silly, right? You need to trust in God and you need to shape up, right, because you're worried over nothing, right? You need that kind of tough love. Or, or, right, what you're going through is so difficult, you're buckling under its weight, you need somebody strong to come and cover you with their expertise, with their strength, and say, it's going to be okay, let me take care of your problems for you. But other times, you need somebody who's going to come in with gentleness, somebody who's going to be tender with you. You know, I know I'm being an idiot, But what I need right now is a gentle word from somebody who tells me it's going to be okay. I'm here with you. And depending on what season you're going through life, you may be going through life, you know that you need both kinds of care. And here we get a picture of both from this God. He's both strong and tender. He is the lion and the lamb. And the kind of care that we need from God at different seasons in our life may be that from a lion, and other seasons in life, we may need care from a lamb. And here's a God who knows exactly how you need to be cared for, 
And he's saying, I will respond appropriately to whatever it is that you're going through. His protection and care for us is versatile. But secondly, we find that it's comprehensive. If you look at verses 5 to 6, here's what it says. It says, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now let's break this down real quick. The psalmist says, you will not fear the terror of night. And what is he talking about? It's talking about this debilitating fear and anxiety that prevents someone from being able to sleep. In our modern lingo, right, with kind of a greater awareness with mental health issues, we may say this person may have some kind of uh, anxiety or uh, anxiety or mood disorder. This person is struggling with his mental health, right? He's talking about the ills of the mind. But then he says, you will not, uh, nor the arrow that flies by day, right? Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Right now, the psalmist is talking about physical harm. The enemy's attack or some kind of disease, right? It's talking about what ills the body, and so what the psalmist is saying, whatever it is that you need to be protected from, whether it's uh, from physical harm or mental or emotional harm, God is there to protect you. Right? Whatever it is that you need protection from. Now, let me just quickly say here, this is not saying that you are, if you are a Christian, and you may have heard this from uh, some other folks, and I'll tell you this is not true. It is not saying that if you're a Christian, that you are immune from ever getting sick, that you are immune from experiencing any kind of mental health crisis. No, no, this is a work of poetry. It's talking about something different, but even better. Here's what the psalmist is telling us with this comprehensive protection that we receive from God. It's telling us that there is absolutely nothing that will ever happen in your life that is outside of God's control. It's saying that not a single hair from your head is going to fall out. There is no hardship that will come to you unless it is allowed by the God of the universe. And if it is allowed by the God of the universe who happens to love you, there is no hardship that can come your way that can ultimately destroy you. But every hardship that comes your way can only make you stronger, can only make you more beautiful in God's sight. Here's what a hymn writer And Pastor John Newton says about this, he says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Here's the assurance with God's comprehensive protection. It's telling us that nothing slips through the cracks with God. That every single thing that you experience in your life, both the good, but especially the bad, If you are a Christian, you need to remember that God has allowed this to happen to you. And I'm not discounting the suffering some of you may be experiencing right now. And I'm not saying everything is going to be rosy. It is going to ultimately at the end, but that is not what you need to hear from me. What you need to hear from me is that if 
you are suffering, if you're asking questions of why you're experiencing the kinds of things you're experiencing, the ulti- ultimately the answer resides with God. A God who has promised to be good to you. A God who says, I will not allow a single thing to happen to my beloved son or daughter without my permission. And that is a reality that we are being encouraged to grapple with. So his protection over us is comprehensive. But thirdly, it's personal. Now, if you look at verse 7, it says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come uh, near you. Now, obviously, it's talking about, you know, some kind of battle, right, that is raging around the psalmist. And it may not come across so obviously in English, but if you were to look at the original language, you see that you, uh, the word you at the end of verse 7 here, it says it will not come near you. It's hard to get it across in English, but it's in the emphatic in the Hebrew language. Here's what it means. The psalmist is basically saying a thousand may fall. Actually, no, scratch that. Ten thousand may fall all around you. Even if all of them may fall, you, you, I will protect. That's what the psalmist is saying. I have my eyes, in the midst of tens of thousands of people around you, I have my eyes fixed squarely onto you, and I will make sure that even if everybody else falls, that you, you will not fall. Now, think about protecting one person in a crowd of 10,000. I often think of it this way. You know you have celebrities that are trying to just live a normal life and go to a coffee shop? What do they need to do? They need to have bodyguards around them, right? Protect them from paparazzis or anybody that may do, you know, have funny ideas or whatever, right? And what do these bodyguards need to do in order to protect this one person? They need to be close, Right? You can't be standing 30 feet away and say you're protecting this person. No, if you're in the midst of a crowd that is rushing in to protect a person, you need to be close to them. Right? And that's the kind of active, intimate engagement that is being talked about here. Here's what God is saying. God is saying, I, in the midst of all of these troubles that may come your way, you need to understand that those things that come your way not only do not happen outside of my permission, when those things do happen to you, what you need to understand is that every single step of the way, I will never turn my eyes away from you. I have my sights set on you. So you can be assured that whatever it is that you are going through, it does not happen outside of my control. It does not happen outside of my watch. It does not happen outside of my care for you. It's personal. Lastly, quickly, it's empowering. Let's look at verse 13. He says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, or cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Now, there are kind of two layers of meaning. On the one hand, you can kind of take the image for what it is and the first impression that it leaves on you, that any kind of predator that comes your way, figuratively speaking, you will be able to trample underfoot. But here's another layer to that. In ancient Hebrew literature, 
creatures like the lion and the adder were actually ancient symbols for powers of evil, whether it be individual tyrants or systemic evils of the evil kingdoms of the world. And you'll find kind of hints of these images in the book of Daniel, for example. And so when the psalmist says, you will trample underfoot the lion and the adder, he's saying, if you were to experience the kind of protection from God that's being depicted here in the psalm, that when you're faced with evil, you're not merely going to survive it, but God's protection of you will be such that you will not be, now be empowered to defy it. Notice the language here and how strong it is. He says, you will trample on the evil forces of the world. Friends, that's the kind of power that can be found in this protection. See, in the midst of suffering and going back to highlighting why it's so important that our protection from God does not whisk us away from the sufferings of the world because, in fact, we are called into suffering. We are called into live amongst evil to bring the light of Christ, to bring the goodness of God into a broken world. In the midst of that, if all we are getting is passive protection from God, then what good are we? It's saying that if you actually experience the protection of God, if you find God to be your shelter, ironically what you'll find is that you will be empowered in such a way as to be sent out into the world to look into the face of evil and injustice and say, I defy you. In the name of God who provides me with the kind of protection that I need. Right? That is the kind of protection that we get. And for those of you, for those of you that are experiencing unspeakable suffering at this time, let me just say this. You have a God who is with you. You have a God who is next to you, who is tied close to you. Nothing ever comes your way is outside of his control. And so if you're going to fist your, you know, shake your fist in the air, do so towards the throne of grace, towards God himself and do business with him. Because here is the astounding, audacious claim of Christianity what Christianity claims is that every single suffering that you go through is going to lead to your empowerment. There is nothing that the world can throw at you that you can't look square in the eye and say, you will do nothing to destroy me. The only thing that you can do is bring me nearer to the throne of God's grace who will provide me with the kind of protection that I need and who will empower me to move out into the world, to not just face you head on, to face all kinds of injustices in the world head on, and to do something about it. See, friends, what the church needs right now are, are not people that are filled with fear. We need people that are filled to the brim with the love and care and protection of the God of the universe who will be moved out into the world to face the injustices of the world for the sake of others who are not afraid of suffering, who are not afraid of hardship, but experience God's protection in such a way as to boast in them the way the Apostle Paul did.
because that's the kind of protection that God provides. Now, if that is the kind of protection that God provides, then the question is, how can we experience this kind of care, right? That is the promise that is given to us, right? And that is the promise that we can claim. But how are we to live this out in the day-to-day? Well, here's the answer. The last point, how do we experience this protection and care? Now, St. Augustine, uh, who was a Christian theologian back in the fourth century, said this that I think will be applicable for us. He said, only the love of the immutable will bring tranquility. Only the love of the immutable will bring tranquility. And, you know, I find this to be true in so many ways. I find that the older I become, I get more nostalgic as the years go by. You know, I find myself, I'm just spent at the end of the day, my wife and I, and we put the kids down to bed and we go back to our phones and we flip back at the old photos and we find ourselves getting lost in them. And I find this to be true. I find that the ti- as the times get harder, I find that I get more nostalgic. And if I were to venture a guess, and I'm not an expert in this in any way, but I think it may be because the memories that are captured in those photos in my mind are always kind of there, right? They're unchanging, or at least in my perception. And they're just kind of waiting for me to go back there and to relive these happy memories. And they're dependable, right? And in some way, it provides a respite for me. I don't know what role nostalgia plays in your life. But here's the problem with nostalgia, We can talk about the good old days as much as we want, but we know that in reality, the good old days are almost never as good as we make them out to be, right? We idealize them, and we even idolize them. But having said that, here's what's nevertheless true of our hearts. If we're going to set our heart on something to be our shelter, if we're going to turn to something every time we are faced with anxiety insecurity and threat if we're going to turn to something we need that place to be dependable right we need to be convinced that that place is not just capable of protecting us and giving the care that we need we need to know that no matter what happens no matter what happens no matter what we've done no matter what's happened to us we need to know that that place will be there through thick and thin. Now, having said that, let's go back to the passage. If you look at verses 1 to two, one and 2, <clears throat> it's interesting because God here is referred to as the Most High. He is referred to as the Almighty. Right? These are different names of God that are meant to highlight His power. And so by evoking these names God, uh, of God, the psalmist is essentially saying, here's how I know that God can protect me. Right, because he is the most high, he is the almighty, he's able, and he's powerful. And certainly we saw in the previous point that he is capable of providing the kind of protection for us that we need. But the question remains, how can I know that no matter how powerful God may be, that he is willing, that he will provide the protection that I need? And this is where we absolutely need the end of the psalm. So if you jump down to verses 15 to 16, Now, up to this point, the psalm has been written from the perspective of the psalmist himself, right? He is the speaker, right? He's addressing his own self and he's addressing others. But as you get to verse 15, 
the speaker changes. Listen to this, verse 15. Actually, let me read from verse 14, right? Verse 14, it says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. All of a sudden, verse 14, God himself breaks into the psalm, interrupts the psalmist and says, I will have the last say. See, whenever I officiate weddings, I try and tend to be flexible with the couple. You know, they have various kind of desires for what their ceremony, um, what they want the ceremony to be. And so, you know, I worked with the couple for the most part, but the one place that I won't flex and can be quite rigid in are the vows. Because a wedding vow is a pledge. A wedding vow, rightly done, talks not about how much I love you right now, But a wedding vow says, I will love you in the future. Not that I love you right now when things are rosy and you're looking as beautiful as you're ever going to be, but that I will love you when we're old and gray, when we get into fights, when you see the ugliness that's inside my heart. A wedding vow is a pledge towards the future, and here's what God is doing. God himself is pledging his very own self to us. He is making a promise to us. It is unconditional. Now you may be saying, wait, 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 hold on, hold on a second. Uh, It says right here, because he holds fast to me in love, I will protect him. So it's really not unconditional. I need to love him, I need to follow his ways, I need to be moral and I need to be religious. But here's what the pastor says, and it doesn't come across in English quite the way it should, because the phrase, he holding fast to me in love, really can literally be translated in this way, because he is attached to me in love. That's what God is saying. He's not saying, because you have done something to grab onto me with your good deeds, I will then protect him. What God is saying is, look, you don't need to worry about why you are attached to me. You're attached to me because you're attached to me. I have attached myself to you in love because I have attached myself to you in love. Not because of anything that you brought to the table, but simply because I love you. And because I have attached myself to you, I pledge my protection and care over you. That's what God is saying. There is no condition that is attached here. And here's what you and I need to know. The last word of our confidence in the face of suffering does not come from you. If it does, you will buckle under its weight and you will be ruined. No, the confidence that we get from this psalm is that the last word of our confidence in the midst of our suffering comes from the Lord. He says, I will have the last say. And my last word on this matter is that you belong to me and I belong to you and I pledge myself to you. And that means there is no force in heaven or hell that can keep God's love away from us. 
See, when it comes to your confidence, how are you going to find a world that is hell-bent on knocking you off your feet? It's knowing that God will stay true to his word. Now, let me just close with this. At this point, we have the perspective that the psalmist himself did not have. And the fulfillment of this very scripture that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, if you look at Matthew 4, and some of you, when, you, when I was reading the psalm, you may look, wait, those two verses sound kind of familiar. And it's because it comes out of Matthew chapter 4. It's when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan makes a direct quote of this psalm. And he says, uh, he says uh, um, uh, if you are the son of God, Satan says, throw yourself down. And then he quotes the psalm, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, I suppose technically Satan isn't lying here, right? He is the son of God. I mean, you know, he can command angels to come and save him whenever he wants to. Even when he was hanging on the cross, he could have had a legion of angels come and deliver him. So he's technically not lying. So why does Jesus take issue with what Satan says here? He takes issue with what Satan says here because Satan was trying to get Jesus to veer off his mission. Why? Because Jesus' mission from the start was to go to the cross, to have his foot nailed, not dashed against the stone, nailed to the cross of wood to be broken apart. Why? Because that's what it would take for God himself to keep his pledge to you. That's what it took for Jesus to stay true to his promises. He was the one who took on the arrows. He is the one who took on the pestilence, the sickness, and the terror of the darkness on himself. You remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking on the terrors of night. He cannot sleep. He cannot eat. Filled with tears, asking God to let the cup pass from him. And yet to the end, he stayed obedient to the Father's will. Why? to take on the cost of God staying true to his word to you. And friends, if you understand that, that's what it costs to love. See, anytime you give yourself away to somebody and pledge to love them, you know you're bearing the cost. There is messiness that follows inevitably. But if you look to Jesus Christ losing every bit of himself on the cross with his heart resolutely set upon you, no matter what uncertainty that you may be living through, you will know this, that your circumstances won't have the last word. But God's grace upon your life will have the last word because he won the right. He won the right to have the last word with you. Because he holds fast, because he is attached to me in love, he says, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Will you go to this God with your entire self? Will you find this one place to be a place in which you can truly be vulnerable 
And what you'll find is that God will fill you up with the kind of confidence that will allow you to be vulnerable with yourself and be vulnerable with others in love and service. And that's the kind of community that God is looking to create here at Grace Church, a community that is not afraid to be vulnerable with one another because we have found our hiding place in Jesus Christ who had his hands nailed open to the cross to accept us just as we are and speaks a word of care and protection over us until the end of the age. And with that confidence, will you look to one another and accept and care for one another just as they are because we are accepted in Christ just as we are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, I come before you, God, with fear and trembling. For I know, God, there is so much of who I am that is built upon the foundation of wanting to cover over myself, cover over my weaknesses, cover over my sins and insecurities. And God, it is a scary endeavor to come before the throne of the God of the universe to be stripped bare of those things and to be vulnerable before you. And God, that is a step that many of us are looking to take or wanting to take but haven't been quite able to take yet for us to come before you just as we are, hollowed out of our pretenses and to come to you just as we are. But help us, God, to know by your Holy Spirit that we can come to you just as we are, vulnerable before you for you are the one who provides us with the kind of protection and care that we need. And as we experience that, may we turn to our neighbors, may we turn to one another as a church and be vulnerable with one another and accept one another's vulnerabilities. And will you make us whole as a church before you? God, we thank you for what we have in your son, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.